According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in the book of Proverbs once again, Proverbs chapter 12. We are still in the first four verses as we've been dealing with uh, the preliminary things. It's kind of fallen into a rut and fallen into a habit. Each chapter we kind of slow things down and spend more time in the early verses and then we race through the final verses of the, of the chapter. We'll see if that pattern continues or not. And before long, because of the built-in redundancy in the book of Proverbs, we're eventually going to reach a point that we've taught it all. Because, uh, you know, the, these concepts come up again and again and again and again. And, and so, uh, anyway, uh, we'll be keep hitting issues uh, such as the excellent wife that's the crown of her husband. Well, we get this again and again and again. Uh, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. And uh, so we have a contrast there. And that's one that comes up again and again. And, and so each time we come to it, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, uh, we'll be able to take advantage of the fact that we've already taught it in the earlier, in the earlier applications. And so theoretically, the further we make our way through Proverbs, uh, the more streamlined it becomes because we've already covered it. It's a concept we've already come to. If, uh, if that makes any sense. All right, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship, not out of fellowship, and humble to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the blessings of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. I thank you for the grace that uh, makes uh, this even possible, Father. Apart from your grace, we cannot comprehend the things of God, and yet here we are. So uh, we rejoice in your faithfulness, we rejoice in your grace, and uh, we're prepared to feast upon your truth here this morning. Feed us from your your word. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, remember, no class next week. Next week is the Schaefer Seminary Conference, and so many of us will be out of town, and uh, uh, there will not be a, a morning schedule. We'll have an evening schedule, uh, but not a morning schedule next week, all right? So Proverbs 12, and uh, we're talking about the love of knowledge that requires discipline and reproof there in verse 1, and discussed the applications there. We had some subpoints A, B, and C. I'll pass by those. Talked about being stupid in the Hebrew vocabulary of Ba'er, and I appreciate that. Um, that's right, this is Robert's first time with us, so maybe I should slow down. <laughs> All right, so uh, Proverbs 12.1, the love of knowledge requires discipline and reproof. And we see this in verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And so we can take the poetry from verse 1 and we can combine the two halves of the verses. We can do what I call the crisscross, where we cross-match the A part and the B part of the verse, and we bring in the double application here. The love of knowledge does require discipline and reproof. If you're not willing to submit to the discipline and you're not willing to submit to the reproof, then you don't love the knowledge that God has provided for you because this is what the mechanism is that makes that knowledge possible. Apart from this blessing, we are stupid brutes. And the word for stupid there is the word for the animal, the non-reasoning, the, the non-human animal that does not reason. 
And so the vocabulary on this is musar for the discipline and instruction. That's training up a child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, the disciplined instruction that we need. And then tokachath, we talked about with respect to the reproof. And that is the legitimate application when we are out of line. The reproof nails us on it. And it, it, it sparks, or is designed to spark, our repentance and our, and, uh, our corrective action. And then the adjective ba'er, as we deal with that which is senseless or stupid in its applications in Psalms and Proverbs. All right. Takes us then to verse 2. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. And we see then the contingent targeting of, of God and how he responds, right? God's grace is bestowed upon the humble. We know that. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The grace of God is targeted in one direction and the condemnation of God is targeted in another direction. And these are contingent, all right? And we want to be clear on this. And this bugs some people, but I think if we teach it accurately, we're good, all right? And uh, we want to make sure that we teach it, though, with the appropriate balance so that we don't fall into poor theology or we fall into some traps of folks that want to take this principle and then wield it like a, like a stick, wield it like a weapon, or say, all right, God, I've been a good boy, you have to bless me now, and, and demand that the grace of God come to me because in my view, uh, I've been a good man. I've been pretty good. Why, why is that favor not shining upon me? And uh, uh, there are others that will abuse this, all right? And they'll look at somebody that, they, they, that in their view is... is uh, wicked or devising evil, and they want to know how come God hasn't blasted them yet. They want to know they're not, we're not content with the speed with which you know, the wrath of God is, is destroying that person yet, all right? Failing to realize that God in His long-suffering and patience is bringing that person to repentance. So He doesn't have to destroy them in His wrath. So this can get abused in a lot of ways. Calvinists don't like it. A lot of folks don't like it. Um, if they feel that it turns, it subjects God's sovereignty underneath human volition, that it then uh, subjugates God's control over what He does. Now God, man, he, He's kind of bound, you know, He's trapped. Doggone it, here we came along and we, we made some right choices and we did some good things and, and now God's sovereignty, His hands are tied, handcuffed behind His back. He has to, he has to bless us now. He doesn't want to. But he kind of has to because we made some good choices and now he's obligated, see. And so it, it's, it, it's, it would be more amusing if it wasn't so sad, but the, the, the believers that really have trouble with this issue uh, are, are of the sort that want to so hyperemphasize sovereignty that they're terrified that our volition is somehow going to diminish it, that our volition is somehow going to hamstring it. And it is not the case. God sovereignly chose to create us with volitional capacity. And so God Himself reconciles them with no problems at all. God Himself has, has vested us with our accountability in the choices we make. And that does not hamstring Him or does not limit His own sovereignty. And so I think that these aspects here are useful to study the, the contrast between favor and um, scheming. I think uh, are the two words that jumped out at me anyway. The, the man who devises evil, this is the target of his, of his condemnation. And then uh, the good man that obtains favor, all right? And so those are the two terms that jumped out at me. I want to make sure we're solid on those. The ratzon is the favor of God. 
And remember, favorability speaks to uh, huggability, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the, that which is gracious, that which is favorable, the, uh, the delight is favorable. It's an acceptable thing. Most of the Ratzon uses come in, in Leviticus. It's, it's the fact that an offering is either acceptable or not acceptable. If it's a sweet-smelling savor, it's acceptable before the Lord. If you bring the appropriate sacrifice, it's Ratzon. It's acceptable. And so God receives it. God embraces it. And so anything that we delight in or that we embrace, that's the, uh, the imagery here. It's the acceptable thing which impels someone to embrace it close. And we should all be striving to be Ratzon in God's sight. We want to be acceptable in God's sight in our meditation, in our thoughts, the words of our lips. May they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. That's Ratzon. And then the idea of plotting and scheming. He will condemn a man who devises evil. And I wanted to stress this as well. Um, the idea of mazima, it's not as, as, as uh, well known. It's not a very common word. It has 19 uses. But the idea of, uh, of scheming and inventing, the idea of using our human creativity to somehow try to get away with something, <laughs> right? It's a very perversion of the image of God that He's blessed us with. The fact that He is the creator, but we are creative, and we use our creativity to, and our imagination to, uh, to invent. And we should be harnessing that for the glory of Jesus Christ. We should be creative and inventive if we, if we write a song or if we, if, uh, just other things that we do in God's service. We should use our creativity. I'm, I'm humbled when I think of what our Sunday school teachers do with the children, right? Because they're taking doctrine and then they're, they're teaching it on a, on a level that the children can understand. And they, have, they use crafts and they use pictures and coloring and whatever. Working with the small kids is not easy, right? I don't think it's easy. Um, I'm glad that I, I pastor adults, <laughs> okay? But these Sunday school teachers, God bless them, and, and, and their craftiness and, their, and on a positive craftiness, see, and so the verb itself is not even a bad word. The noun is not a bad word. In fact, several of these uses are positive uses in Proverbs 1.4 and 2.11 and 3.21 and 5.12 and 8.12. All those early uses are positive uses of, of discretion. We want to have discretion. Discretion's a great thing until you pervert it. Until now, all of a sudden, your discretion becomes a, a device of, of craftiness, a device of wickedness. And now you're using it for the nefarious purposes. And that's what happens in chapter 12, chapter 14, and chapter 24. And um, I'm still not sure why it's, it's crafted this way. Proverbs 1 through 9 is the section that I've labeled uh, parental wisdom. It's the section where we're developing wisdom in our children, where we're passing it on to the next generation. And in that section of Proverbs, all the Mazima uses are positive uses. But then you get to the, the, the next section in uh, Proverbs 10 through 24, and you'll notice they're all negative uses, as, uh, as you see it there. Condemning a man who devises evil. If you're using your creativity for evil, that's not a good thing. All right. So uh, they are contingently targeted, and I think we're, we're clear on that. Moving on then to verse 3. And boy, here's one I can spend the whole hour on. And maybe I will spend the whole hour on this. We've got some verses to look through. And I've got some uh, exhortation to deliver. God's provision is for our fixed stability. God's provision is for our fixed stability. 
And I stress this, I stress this today, I've stressed this in the past, I'm going to preach this till I die. Maybe I'll even convince Sharon to put this on my tombstone someday. Um, God's provision is for our fixed stability. And reading from Proverbs 12, 3, just to get us started here, a man will not be established by wickedness. And the verb there, we're speaking of something that's fixed, something that's secure, something that, that doesn't, you know, it's not shaken, right? When we think about God's unfolding plan, we're thinking about stability. We're thinking about, we're looking forward to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And uh, what God's word provides for us to, uh, to enjoy that even now, even before that kingdom is, is, is here. All right. So a man will not be established by wickedness. And you can think of this on a construction basis with a firm foundation, right? You've got a firm, solid foundation. Then the metaphor switches to agriculture. But the root of the righteous will not be moved. All right? So when you look at verse 3, you've got the, the parallelism there. Again, it's the A part and the B part of the verse, the first half and the second part of the, of the verse. And uh, you have established and you have will not be moved, okay? You have a root in uh, the contrast that we see here. saying the same thing twice, just using a construction metaphor in the first half and an agriculture planting metaphor in the second half, okay? Because if the roots are down deep enough, what do you got? Your plant is stable, right? Your tree is stable, your bush, whatever it is, okay? As long as it's rooted, and I love that. I mean, this comes across in the New Testament, right? That we're supposed to be rooted and grounded in love. Same thing. We end up with a double metaphor that uses rooting and grounding in, uh, in a similar fashion. All right. So we have stability. And, and think, think your way through as well. Again, just looking at verse 3. Um, what is the consequence then of wickedness? If it's not stability... It's not, uh, it's not uh, being rooted and grounded. It's, it's, the, it's the antithesis. It's the opposite. You're just tossed to and fro. You, you bounce from one chaos to the next. Uh, your life is a whirlwind and everybody else's life around you is a whirlwind and you're just, you're just uh, you know, a, a scattered victim of, of the cosmos. And who wants that? See, there's no reason for it. Not when wisdom is made available for us to have a firm foundation, to have the stability of... Uh, of God's will. So uh, we have it here. Not only in verse 3, but if you glance down to verse 19 in the same chapter, the principle comes across there as well. Verse 19 of the same chapter, we've got vocabulary that matches. Proverbs 12 and verse 19. Truthful lips will be established forever, but the lying tongue is only for a moment. And uh, again, the, the poetry here speaks to this, speaks to the contrast between something that is fixed and stable and anchored, in our case forever, as opposed to Satan and all of his minions, the lying tongue, and when God permits them to express those lies, uh, the finite nature of the uh, angelic conflict, the finite nature of Satan's rebellion, the finite nature of... Uh, of operating outside the will of God. The lying tongue is only for a moment. So think about our stability. Think about the stability that we have. And when you think about what eternal life even is and how we already have it now, we're not waiting to receive it when we get to heaven. We already have it now. We are in full possession of eternal life from the very moment we trust in Christ. 
So don't you think by definition that that very eternal life we presently have ought to be something of fixed security and stability? <laughs> I mean, something that endures forever seems to me that's, that's a pretty stable thing. Seems to me that that's, a, that's solid ground in which to be anchored. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that we have, uh, that we have this here. And you know something? In, in a lot of respects, um, this very doctrine, this concept that we're speaking of here this morning, um, I believe that this can be evangelistic. I think that in many cases this concept has an appeal to the unbeliever that is lacking stability, that's lacking uh, assurance, that's lacking any, any kind of truth. You know, you're calling out for truth and you want to know, is there anything real in this world? Is there anything that endures? And it may be that this is the, the very realm of, of thought that the Holy Spirit uses to convict, to draw the unbeliever, to, to, to drive them to something that is permanent and fixed and, and eternal, something that resonates with their, their very soul. Perhaps. All right. If we back up to chapter 10, you'll see uh, that this is a concept that we've previously come to. Proverbs 10 and verse 25. And so uh, I didn't reprint my chapter 10 notes, so I don't recall how much emphasis I put on this verse when we were in chapter 10. But uh, Proverbs 10, 25 says, When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. And so again, that's our vocabulary. That's the concept here of a fixed stability. You know, what's left over after Hurricane Katrina comes sweeping through, okay, or any hurricane? What's left over? See, when, when, when you wake up the next morning and a, and a storm has passed through, what are you looking at? All right? And in some cases, you're looking at devastation and ruin. And in other cases, what are you looking at? You're looking at, wow, that's still there, okay? In a, a couple of uh, places in Galveston and in, in uh, Fulton, uh, the Fulton Mansion and in Rockport and some other places we've gone to. And it's, it's staggering to me how they're still there when uh, you know, they survived this hurricane, they survived that hurricane and all these storms that have come through and, and here's this thing and how solid is this thing? How is it still here? Okay, And uh, I don't like that. It gives me a good illustration. But, and, and here we are too, taking this metaphor now into our experience and the Christian way of life Think about how evangelistic this is as well. When your friends, your coworkers, your enemies, whoever, they're looking at you and they wonder, how are you still here, <laughs> right? How are you still sane? Why are you so stable? Why are you not a basket case? Why is it? Because they're watching what you're going through and they see that and they see a stability there they can't understand. Because if they were in your shoes, they'd be you know, drunk or stoned or divorced or running away from problems or who knows what, Right? But they watch, and, and God uses this to bring to attention those that don't have what we have. And if, if we're humble enough, and if we're willing to submit to it long enough, you know, we realize, yeah, it's not fun to go through, but the longer it lasts, the bigger my testimony is, and maybe the more people I'm, I'm reaching out to, and, and you just have no idea. And so instead of grumbling about why is this test not over with, maybe I can start to celebrate, wow. God's choosing to prolong my witness. <laughs> he is choosing to prolong the occasion that I have to convey the stability of the Word of God. And uh, that may there, I mean, if we put it in those terms, 
Is it not worth uh, the test stretching out just a little bit longer anyway? Okay, Because when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we're going to look back at this test, whatever length the test was, 10 years, 90 years, whatever, it's going to seem like nothing. All right, so anyway, that's Proverbs 10, 25. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. I appreciate that. All right, now on into the New Testament. So much of the New Testament, I think, probably has as its basis our text today, Proverbs 12. If not, at least the concept of stability comes out again and again and again in uh, verses that hopefully we're familiar with, verses that I use a lot in uh, just personal discussion with believers. I use these verses a lot and in, in, in different ways because I, when I encounter brothers and sisters that don't have the stability they should have, I just throw it out there and say, well, why don't you have it? What's, uh, what's, what's the deficiency here? Is the Word of God letting you down? Or are you not living what you should be living? What, what's the application? So um, Proverbs 7, tw- uh, not Proverbs, Matthew 7, 24 and I suspect every one of these verses here is one you're familiar with, but um, Jesus now is the one speaking in Matthew 7. He says, Therefore, any, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. You know, people want to rewrite that verse. I say, well, I don't, there shouldn't be any rain. There shouldn't be any wind. There shouldn't be any, I don't want problems in my life. Well, it's, hello, it doesn't work that way, okay? This is humanity, fallen creatures in a fallen world, and this is what we deal with. So since the rain and the wind and the storms and the floods, it's all going to happen, what kind of house do you want to be in? How do you want to build this foundation? So the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Contrast. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. This is where I think it gets really personal. This isn't a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. In both cases, you have disciples. In both cases, the people that are being addressed have the ears to hear. <laughs> okay? It's, it's doctrinal believers getting rebuked here, okay? Or born-again believers getting rebuked. Because they have the ears to hear, they did in fact hear, but then negative volition stepped in and and they did not make the application. They chose not to act upon what they had learned. They chose not to live out the doctrine they had academically filled, see. And you know, you got stacks and stacks of notebooks lining up shelves. That's great. I'm glad you learned all that. Are you living it? Are you making the application? If not, your house is built on the sand, and that's what this talks about here. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew. Well, guess what? It's the same rain, same flood, same wind. You see that? That doesn't change. You don't, don't fall for the lie that says, well, you know, if, you, if you're living your Christian life right, then you'll have no problems. That's not the case. You know, if you just get saved, there's no more problems. That's a lie. All right. So I uh, slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Now what makes that fall so great? 
think of great in terms of uh, tragic, unnecessary. The greatness of it is the, 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 the tragedy of it. How terrible is it? Um, great was its fall. All right. And when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And you wonder, if, if, if they weren't getting this from their own teachers, why not? What was, what was the Pharisee approach? <laughs> it wasn't this. Say, it was about knowledge, about learning. The knowledge that puffs up and the love that edifies. It was about the just what you know, what you know, what you know, not about what you're doing, what you're doing, what you're doing. Yeah, I don't know. It's curious to me. He was teaching them as one having authority, not as one of their scribes. All right, so there's, there's the principle there. What are you doing? Are you, listening to, are you under teaching, first of all? And then are you living out what you're learning? Are you walking by faith? All right, 1 Corinthians 15. first thing you think of when you think 1 Corinthians 15. Resurrection. There you go. That, man, that's word association. When you think 1 Corinthians 15, that ought to be just boom, resurrection. And uh, there you have it. All right. And so we get 57 words, uh, verses of uh, wonderful doctrine as it pertains to our resurrection the body that's sown, the body that's raised, and all the contrast, all the neat things we have to look forward to. Um, and all of that, the mystery of the resurrection, the transformation in the twinkling of an eye, uh, all, you know, 57 verses of tremendous doctrine and encouragement and all that, all leading to a therefore, <laughs> right? And here's your therefore in verse 58. And the bottom line ought to be since all those other verses are great stuff to look forward to, how should we operate presently, in time, right here, right now? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. I like to combine those and take the comment out. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. We are admonished, we are exhorted, we ought to be stable. We ought to be like the rock of Gibraltar, right? I mean, there it is, okay? I've never been there, but you've been there. You've sailed in the the harbor there, and you've seen the rock. Um, You know, if if you ever go back, guess what? It's still there, (laughs) okay? It, it, It hadn't gone. It hadn't moved. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable. And how? Or the rest of this here? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice the steadfast immovability does not come about by hearing. It comes about by doing. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. If you're a true disciple, it's abiding in the Word of God, that is learning it and living it. If you're not just a hearer only that deludes himself, but an effectual doer of the Word of God, well then guess what? This is the activity that coincides with the stability God provides. See? And I hope we're clear on this. And, and don't fall for the trap that, 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 that confuses stability with prob, uh, prob being problem-free. Okay? You might have a thousand problems going on and you're still the most stable believer you know. That's great. That's the way it's designed. So, uh, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And I love the, 
the present nature of that, knowing the participle expression there, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Do you know that? And do you ever stop knowing that? <laughs> do you ever stop thinking that? Do you ever fall for the lie and get distracted and then start to participate in the pity party that starts to think that, well, it's not worth it. Well, nothing's getting done. Well, no one's listening anyway. Or, well, it's a waste of time. See? And the minute you start doing that, the minute you stop knowing that your toil is not vain in the Lord is when you start assuming that your toil is vain in the Lord, that it's all a waste of time, that it's not worth it. See? Anyway, so the always abounding has to be continuous action in present time and the always knowing. We want to make that continuous action in present time. And if we're abounding and knowing and we're keeping that our focus, then... uh, will obey the imperative of the verse to be steadfast immovable. Be steadfast immovable. What did I call this when we taught 1 Corinthians? A, a sanctified stubbornness? Or, I forget. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an advantage to being the solid rock, right? Because we stand on the solid rock. We can be the solid rock. And, uh, and, and we should be the solid rock because there, there, there are going to be occasions when the others around us uh, fall short, and then we can we can help to anchor them, right? The the husband flies off the handle, but the wife stays the solid rock. Okay, benefit in the marriage. The children fly off the handle, but the parents stay the solid rock. Benefit in the family. Okay, or the other way around, the wife is out there in Looney Tunes, and the husband stays the solid rock. Okay. Or how about when the parents are out of their minds and the children are the... That's upside down, but it can happen. Okay? Um, The pastor and the flock. Okay? Deacons, one to another. See? Of course, not the pastor. He's never carnal or anything. So, (laughs) So, you know, he would never never lose his stability. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Okay? No, constantly... All testing is common to man. And so if uh, the pastor gets out of sorts and he's all trembling over whatever and you get a deacon who comes alongside or a fellow elder who comes alongside and, 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 and reminds him, hey, stability, right? The faithfulness of God, the promises of God, here we are. He'll, he'll get us through this. And then, you know, you have the chance then to reorient and get back on the, the stability again. How about Ephesians chapter 3 and chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 3 is verse 17, and then chapter 4 is verse 14. And I love this. This is uh, part of Paul's mature prayer life of Ephesians 3. And uh, there's, there's so much in this, you know, when you I find it tragic how churches today are avoiding all things angelic and so they're not teaching angelic conflict and they're not teaching the spiritual warfare and the realities of this and uh, they flat out tell you that they you know that they don't find that practical they want to they want to just equip their their church members with practical whatever about morality and being a good person but how do you separate the angelic conflict from that and, and then, uh, you know, the idea that uh, we're under this kind of conflict, we have to have our armor on, the angels are watching, and uh, 
So in verse 10, we find out that the, uh, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I mean, if you don't know that you're on display and the angels are watching and learning, then a lot of stuff you deal with won't make sense why you're being tested or why these things are happening. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at that. The plan of God's an eternal plan, and that's much bigger than just my temporal testing, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Guess what? I'm in Christ, and, and the eternal plan of the Father is being carried out in Christ, and I, that's where I am. That's where you are. So there's stability there. We have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. There's a purpose for this, and it's all working together for good. Then he goes on, and in this prayer now, for this reason, for this reason, in the context of the church's victory in the angelic conflict, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And so there is a plan that encompasses all of humanity and all of angelity. There is an overall plan of the ages that's summed up in Christ. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. I love that. Not according to what you've earned and deserved. Not according to what you think you are worthy of. Not according to, well, you've been a good boy lately, so He has to, you know, you scored some brownie points and you'll get some good stuff. No. Or, well, I've had a kind of a rough month now. I've kind of been in carnality. I'm not really walking well. So am I throwing away my position in Christ? How does that work? No, I'm not throwing it away. I'm in Christ. He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. See, that's our stability. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. I believe the church age has access to dimensions of doctrine, to dimensions of truth, to the plan of God in an unfolded way beyond anything the angels ever dreamed of, beyond anything Israel ever dreamed of in the Old Testament. And and it comes with this uh, rooted and grounding. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. See, it's beyond the academic. It's beyond the instruction. It's beyond what we're learning and and knowing. It's what we're doing. Living out this word day by day. Jesus said, greater things than these you will do. The church age is beyond anything Jesus experienced in his incarnation. He walked this earth under the Old Testament uh, stewardship of Israel. He was born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law, right? He did not operate in his incarnation. He did not operate under the the greater things that we do in the church age. Stability. It's a beautiful thing. So him who is to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Okay? Able to. What did we talk on Sunday about that able? That able? Able to. Are you on board with it? Are you doing it? Are you living it? He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. This is us just not learning doctrine. This is us living it out, operating in the, in the will of God and the Word of God on a daily basis. And there, there's a power there. 
the power that works within us. And whether we like it or not, more often than not, we don't like it, but that power is perfected in weakness. That means we go through the weakness. That means we demonstrate the weaknesses and the sicknesses and the, and the conflicts and the struggles and the fears and, and the disappointments and everything else. But that's when the power is perfected and we get to live it out. And we are completely stable in the entire process, being rooted and grounded in love. Over to chapter 4, verse 14, is the as a result. As a result of what? As a result of basically 11 through 13, operating in a local church. If you're not under the uh, authority of a pastor teacher, if you're not operating in a local church, if you're not involved with the body of Christ, then you're going to be tossed. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Verse 11, see, that there is structure. We'll be seeing this in Philippians because we have the greetings to the overseers and the deacons. We have structure in every local church. We have structure in this local church based upon these passages. Why does he give these? For the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints. For the knowledge? No, for the work of service. And the equipping comes through knowledge, but you're expected to do the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man. Now this is that, we're going to see this in Philippians as well, this is that like-mindedness to be of one mind, intent on one purpose, okay? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's not a cult, That's not just slavishly agreeing with everything your pastor says. No, the unity of the faith is we all have the like-mindedness and it's the mind of Christ. It's His mind. It's His thinking. The full knowledge of the the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's where we are. That's That's where He's taking us. So as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the tri- trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but truthing in love. Okay? Aletheia, the noun, becomes uh, aletheuo, the verb. Truthing. Truthing in love. And mostly we truth through words, so we speak the truth. But we also live the truth. We truth one another. It's awkward to say it in English, but we, we're truthing one another. Through what we say, through how we live, through what we do, through our attitudes, truthing in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And so there's stability here. And it's stability because we're not alone. It's stability because we're part of a body. Stability is provided as I'm growing and you're growing and, and individually we may have an unstable moment, but if, if we're identifying with one another, then the stable ones bless the unstable ones and this, this works. It's a powerful thing. Unless you're Joe Hermit Christian living out there in a cave somewhere and neglecting the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, and you just think that you can just wing it like John Wayne Christianity. Okay? Doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. You know what I mean by John Wayne Christianity? Are you familiar with that expression? 
Yeah, it's the, it's the old John Wayne movies where what does he do, and then you see it, and and it doesn't matter if there's you know ten or twelve or how many banditos are out to get him, or whatever. He can all by himself walk right down the middle of the street, and he's firing his guns and blasting everything, and and all by himself, <laughs> single-handedly just shoot him up and and win, right? And no one else is, for whatever reason, they're, they're just terrible shots. <laughs> okay, all right. I also exaggerate, so maybe every movie's not quite the same, but they seem they seem like that. Um, but but think about it: how many Christians put themselves into that mode, what I call John Wayne Christianity? They think that all by themselves they can just march right down the center of the street, guns blazing, and uh, and and no, that that moron that walks down the center of the street like that, he's going to get shot. Okay, first one is going to take him down, and then he's done. So God has not called us to John Wayne Christianity. All right, so that's uh, chapter 4. We are a body, and we are not to be tossed here and there. So if, use that as a red flag. If you, if you notice, I don't seem to have much stability these days. Well, why is that? Okay, Use that as a red flag and say, Lord, I need to get back where that stability can be found. I need to, I need to get back into that. So uh, Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 2. Now Colossians is a sister epistle to Ephesians and I believe it was written prior. I think Colossians is specific to the church at Colossae but then themes from within Colossians and the overall outline of Colossians was then expanded in a much broader theological treatise that is the book of Ephesians. In any event, Colossians one twenty three. How did I lose that? All right. I'm not sure how that happened, but okay. Um, verse 21, Colossians 1.21, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So here's a contrast. How you were and how you are now. And how you're expected to be now. All right, How you were as an unbeliever and now you've been reconciled. All right, And then there's the expectations. Not only what He has done, in other words, something that's automatic, something that's done to you, a position you're now in, but then something else beyond that that's not automatic. That's not done to you. Something that you must volitionally get on board with. You and I must become active participants in this new way of living. And so um, he's done this with a purpose. He has reconciled you to his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's his purpose clause, the in order to. But now what happens if we don't present ourselves before Him. What happens if we don't, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's done it to present us, but what if we don't present us ourselves? If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, 
We can approach this on a couple of different levels because the if indeed is in fact a first class condition. It is assumed to be true. But assume for the moment that it's not true. Assume for the moment that you, through your own negative volition, through your own carnality, what happens if you don't abide in the faith firmly established and steadfast? (laughs) What happens if you decide to, to chuck doctrine, to walk away from the scriptures, to walk away from your church, to walk away from God? See, now obviously we don't lose salvation we don't lose but what do we lose we we lose what the rest of this verse talks about is that stability we lose the uh the uh firmly established and steadfast we lose and, and so we do become moved away from the hope of the gospel we do become tossed to and fro and we're so moved away from the the hope of the gospel it's the last thing on our mind we're not even thinking about that all we're thinking about is is the problems we're dealing with And so uh, here it is. The hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. All right, so there's stability there. Down to chapter 2. Verse 6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. It's not automatic. It's not the fact that, hey, you're saved now, so automatically you're just going to have this great walk. You've got you've to choose that walk. You've got to learn Christ and live Christ and, and choose that walk. So how did you receive Christ? By grace through faith. How are you going to walk? By grace through faith. It's not going to be human effort. It's not going to be the flesh. So as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude and so we're under doctrinal teaching we're taking in the information we're responding remember gratitude is just another word for grace gratitude is, a, is the expression the thankfulness we are express we are expressing for the grace that he has given Sometimes we lose sight of that because thank is a different etymology from, from grace. But so just use it as gratitude and gratis and you're, you're closer to the, to the grace uh, etymology. But same thing, same aspect here in, uh, in the Greek. And so we're living the Word of God. We're thankful. We're that woman that's wiping his feet with our hair, right? Weeping in tears. We're not like the, the prideful Pharisee who's just so full of himself that uh, he doesn't think he's been forgiven much, so he loves little. And he's not at all thankful. He has no gratitude. He has very little gratitude because to him it's no big deal. I mean, because a guy as righteous and awesome and wonderful as him, it, it wasn't that hard to save him anyway, so what's the big deal? You know, I mean, he's practically saved to start with. So he hasn't been forgiven very much. He doesn't love very much. He has such a diminished view of grace. And I think if, if, you're, if you're grace deficient, you're going to be thankfulness deficient and you're, gonna be, uh, you're not going to be living out the Word of God the way that you would otherwise. And that leaves you unstable. So that's the stability there. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And see to it. See, there's some snares here that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. 
The devil can't do anything about getting you unsaved or causing you to lose that, but what he can do is get your mind redirected. So now you're a prisoner of war. Now you're not living out the Word of God anymore because you're all wrapped up in these, these world viewpoints, these cosmic viewpoints, philosophy and empty deception. And, and, and to me, that's where the bulk of our culture is. They may have a Christian label, but how many are truly regenerate and truly walking by the renewing of, the, of, the, of their mind in the Word of God? See, oh, it's, it, it's staggering to me. Um, the tradition of man, the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. I don't want to pick on the man because I hope he comes. I invited him to come to church, but I met a man the other day and um, he's been attending a Presbyterian church since he got married. And he likes it, thinks it's kind of fun. It was his wife's church. Um, and, and, and he likes God. He's kind of a moral guy, a good guy. But um, there's things in the Bible he doesn't agree with. And, and I told him, I said, well, that's, that's a problem, <laughs> okay? And he was in my office the other day looking at all these books, looking at them, and he just, he liked my office. And he goes, wow, there's a lot of books. Well, uh, and then, uh, but he doesn't think that, that God, God doesn't really send all those people to hell. I mean, that wouldn't be right. And then, you know, because, I mean, really, what if they never heard the gospel? And what if, you know, you know, for thousands of years before the gospel came to the Western Hemisphere, what about Africa? What about, you know, and all, he, he doesn't think that all those people can possibly be in hell, and Jesus can't be the only way. The Bible says it is. And then other aspects, too, about, well, I mean, even a hundred years of total wicked living, that doesn't deserve, a, you know, an infinite, eternal suffering of the lake of fire one sin results in the lake of fire okay one sin adam's original sin results in all of humanity in the lake of fire for all eternity see anyway but what does the scripture say what does the scripture say and what do you think and that's what happened he finally got around once he was giving me his philosophy that god is a god of love and basically we all get there except for maybe hitler and one or two others there's gonna be some really really wicked people they're probably in hell but not many. Most of us are in heaven. And, uh, and so, but then he finally gets around to, well, what do you think? Okay, well, I'll tell you, but it's not what I think. It's what the Bible says. Okay, it comes down to the text. And if you have an issue, you and I aren't having an argument based on what you think and what I think. It's the scripture. And we either conform to what the word of God says, or we, we live in defiance of what the word of God says. And so I said, you know, I, I think it makes a difference as to, as to you still got to be saved. If you're not saved, you're not going to be in heaven. And he says, well, what do you mean by saved? And that right there, my jaw dropped. I'm like, you know, and, and it shouldn't. Why, why should I be so surprised? If you have a good, moral, honest, Republican voting, ethical, church-going kind of guy, been in a Presbyterian church for 10 years, what do you mean by saved? Okay, that was the second time my jaw had dropped. First time was he saw my hymnal collection and I showed him my hymnal collection and he says, what's a hymnal? Yeah, my jaw dropped. <laughs> you know, because they, they do the, the projector, right? They do the PowerPoint. They, do the, they project the words on the wall. They do all the off-the-wall singing that they do with the, with the, without the hymnal, right? And he's a tech guy. He was fixing my computer. He was... Uh, he's a tech guy. He helped install the projectors. 
And that's all he's ever known. Oh, you mean they, they put those in books? <laughs> yeah, words in books with music. Anyway, um, so my first thing, and I, I'm, I'm, I hope he does come, in which case I'm going to feel bad about telling all these stories this morning. But um, he didn't know what a hymnal was, so my jaw kind of dropped there. And then he didn't know what, well, what do you mean saved? What do you mean to be saved? All right, step, start over, step one. <laughs> Gospel, okay? Jesus died on the cross. Here we go. Um, but isn't it interesting how philosophy, empty deception, traditions of men, elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And you'll notice all of these things, there's no value in any of these things. There's no value in phony religion. There's no value in man-made religion. And all of this is just you're a prisoner of war. You are held captive. And who's holding you captive? Well, we've got rulers and authorities in this passage, and they've been disarmed, but you rearmed them and and became their prisoner. Why are you doing that? And then... um, these elementary principles in verse 20, you've died with Christ, you've died to those elementary principles. So quit subjecting yourself to these decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All of these things, there's no use in any of those things. They they have the appearance of, of wisdom in verse 23. Sure, it looks okay, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but uh, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. No value against fleshly indulgence. And if I may, I would take that no value statement, take it back to the first part of the chapter and say, there's no value for stability. There's no value. It provides no stability for the Christian walk. It's only the legitimate renewing of the Word of God. God's provision is for our fixed Stability. Finally then, Hebrews 6.19. Hebrews 6.19. One of my favorite verses. There's two unchangeable things. Verse 17 says, In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose. See? If we're part of that purpose, if we're in that eternal plan, should we have some stability? Because that's the unchangeableness of His purpose. He interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. But you'll see it's volitional. Many don't take hold of it. We should take hold of it. This hope which we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. This is our Christian walk. This is our priesthood. We lay hold of this. We take hold of that eternal life to which we've been called. We're going to see this in Philippians. We forget what lies behind and we take hold. We reach forward to that which lies ahead. It's an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. And I tell you, there there will be days in the Christian walk, we've had it, Paul describes it. Sometimes that's all you've got, is that stability. Everything else is going crazy and you say, well, Lord, you're in charge. (laughs) You've got a plan for this. 
Paul, what did Paul say? I, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. <laughs> okay? Just, hey, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that He is able to keep that which I've entrusted to Him against that day. And that's our rock. That's our anchor. That's our stability. Oh, I love that. All right. Where Jesus has entered as a foreigner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So God's provision is for our fixed stability. All right, we're going to come back in two weeks and we'll tackle marriage. Marriage is either the greatest blessing or the greatest cursing. (laughs) Okay? Or both. (laughs) Marriage is either, because you got the one hand and you got the other hand, both hands are in this verse. And it's not a matter of, well, I married the right person or I married the wrong person. No, even the right person has moments, okay? And, uh, and it goes both directions. Of course, it's written from David and Solomon's perspective, so it's from the standpoint of the, the man and the wife that's um, rottenness to his bones. But you can turn it around just as well. The husband can be rottenness to her bones as well. And uh, the excellent wife, there's the corollary in the excellent husband, in the man of virtue, the man of uh, the mighty man of valor in the application there. And so it does go both ways. Uh, the crown of her husband on the positive application or rottenness to the bones on the negative application. And uh, clearly, <laughs> like in the wedding services I like to preach, uh, this this marriage can succeed or this marriage can fail. And uh, and it will do so under these circumstances or those circumstances. And the Word of God lays it out. And uh, the stability is available. The victory is available. But so too is the instability and the defeat. And uh, And if you don't make the right application, then here's the consequences. And... Uh, there you go. So it won't be next week. We'll come back to this. It'll be two weeks. Remember, next week we're off because of Schaefer. So in two weeks, we'll come back to this, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for stability. And Father, it, it, to me, um, man, I'm so thankful for this and uh, the blessings that we have. And and uh, and I don't know how those without, the, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how unbelievers do it. And believers without doctrine, Father, they, they're saved. They're going to go to heaven when they die. But goodness, in the meantime, what are they doing? And why are they so, why do they have all this turmoil? It's not necessary. And um, the things they're dealing with and the, the failures and the, all the other things, Father, and it's just, uh, it's, it's sad, Father, because it's so unnecessary. The stability is available through your truth and your truth is available and we have a stewardship and a a generation within the church age, Father. Not only is the church age unique, this day and age is unique within the church age. When I consider the Logos Bible software and I I consider the capacity we have on the internet to Skype and and to to convey prayer and information all around the world uh, on an instantaneous basis, Father, we have been given so much. And we can encourage one another and pray for one another and, and uh, we can be grounded in the Word of God. It's, it's a, an amazing thing, Father. There has never been a generation that has, that has had more access to your Word than our generation today. And so we should be the pinnacle of stability in the, in the uh, history of, of the planet. And yet uh, 
In most cases, it's just not there. So, Father, I pray that we would be mindful of these things, that we would be convicted to make the application ourselves personally, but also to reach out and have impact and, and try to be that stabilizing influence in the, in the neighborhood and the community and the churches next door and everywhere we get that opportunity. So, Father, thank you again for all of your truth. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.